Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of World Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Hannah. In this episode, we are speaking to Dalton Ho, Architect and Senior Sustainability Advisor at Perkins & Will in San Francisco. We will be discussing all things accreditations, from whether they are fit for purpose to their biggest challenges and how to achieve multiple certifications for one project. Dalton co-leads Perkins & Will's internal embodied carbon working group, comprised of more than 50 members internationally, developing strategies and content to increase awareness of the importance of upfront carbon in the built environment. But before we begin, our resident trend spotter, Hannah, is here to tell us how interiors could be made more sustainable. Sustainability is so often integral to the approaches taken by interior architects and interior designers that its existence on this trend list feels misplaced. Trends are inherently ephemeral, but sustainability appears here to stay. In a general sense, sustainability in the interior design industry means being mindful of the environment in every aspect of the design process. For interiors in 2022, it means that there will be more secondhand furniture, more use of reclaimed materials and increased focus on energy efficiency. I've spotted some previously published articles that highlight sustainability-focused projects. For example, Montclair's headquarters designed with experience, well-being and sustainability at its core. The office's chimney was restored and refunctionalized to improve the thermal performance of the building. Also, Inhabit Hotel's interest in sustainability and social engagement, a project which used furniture sourced from Goldfinger, a social enterprise that teaches carpentry to disadvantaged groups and produces items made with reclaimed and sustainable material. Dalton, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. We're looking at accreditations, what they actually mean and how valuable they are. Do you feel that the accreditations Well, the Living Building Challenge and LEED work effectively for the industry and support the correct environmental objectives? I guess what I'm saying is, do you think they're fit for purpose? Well, Alison, thanks for having me on again. I think that's a great question. I will begin with a caveat that, you know, I'm not a spokesperson for any of these systems, nor do I necessarily think that certification systems are kind of the be all end all of great high performance green building design. I think you can achieve great buildings without it, but without certification or accreditation in your sense, it's often one person's word versus the other. So I think right off the bat, it offers great accountability. So I think it works well in our industry. I think it's gotten a lot better over the years. There were some very early criticisms and there are passionate folks sitting on both sides and they certainly wouldn't be wrong. I think these are there are valid benefits and issues with all three of the systems that you mentioned and the many more that exist that are still well used in our industry. I think that they've moved the industry forward over the last two or three decades and they've really helped our clients and occupants gain a better understanding of good design and they have demonstrated a multitude of benefits in either environmental or ecosystem health or human health and wellness 
and even topics as complex as resilience and social equity, which I also started to try and address. You mentioned that some people are naysayers about accreditations. What is it specifically that they have concerns about? Yeah, I think the naysayers or the shortcomings, I guess, of the systems are, there's quite a few, and I think they're valid. I would say the first one is often that they can be expensive, which is, it's a valid concern. I think oftentimes it depends on the type of system. It depends on how the system is either kind of administered, monitored, how is it tracked? Is it through documentation or is it through performance? And then sometimes it's just through the benefits and are the benefits of these systems, are they real? Are they actual? And a lot of times that's just based on how difficult some of these systems can be to track. We think about health and wellness systems, for example, the benefits of those can be very difficult to track because what are the metrics that we're comparing against? I think that these naysayers do have valid points, but they are often challenging for rating systems to really fully address. And it's often thinking about how do you take the good with the bad, understand the shortcomings of these systems and really highlight the benefits of them more than anything. They do have a place in producing results and putting a focus on key issues. Can I ask you, who would decide which accreditation should apply to a particular project? And what is evaluated when that decision is made? Is it a decision that is made right at the first steps of planning? Yeah, so oftentimes the decision is often made by the client, especially in the beginning. It's up to the designer to sometimes put forward the different types of rating systems that this project would be suitable for. And you know, a lot of times it is the client that makes that final decision, although that decision can sometimes be driven by the jurisdiction, the green building policies that are in place in that specific location. What we try to do as sitting on the design side is really match up the client's goals or the goals for the project with the system that makes the most sense for it. So whether it's through energy or water savings, perhaps it's net zero carbon or it's net zero energy, or it's just occupant health and wellness, which has gotten very popular over the last several years. And do you find that clients are keen to put an accreditation on a building? It's mixed, of course. As with anything, you have clients that are very into these rating systems because they see it as either a selling feature or they understand the kind of benchmarking that comes along with it. There are others that are maybe not so familiar and it takes a little bit of education with the rating systems, understanding how the industry is. As we know, a lot of times in commercial real estate anyways, these systems can be seen as a sales or leasing feature, and then others that are just doing it because they have to. So if there's a jurisdictional policy in place that says it needs one of these, then they're just saying, let's just do it as cheaply and as quickly as we can, just make sure it gets done. And you mentioned earlier that these are expensive. What kind of extra expense does working towards an accreditation involve? Is there a long-term payback that is included in the calculation, such as energy cost savings over the lifetime of the building? I imagine that a building that has an accreditation is more appealing to potential occupants and therefore more saleability and long-term appeal overall. So there are 
essentially two. There's the soft costs associated with the administration work, the consultant effort, putting all that documentation together, and then there's certification fees. It's hard to kind of give you a number for that, or I think I wouldn't be doing your audience a duty by just throwing out a number there, but I would say typically we find it as a relatively small expense for large projects, which on the flip side makes it challenging for smaller projects because a lot of times that documentation, whether it's a large or small project, you have to go through that documentation anyways. With a larger project, there tends to be more documentation, but it is still easier to justify in that case. And then the certification fees, once again, those range often based on the size of the project, whether it's square footage or land site size. And then that depends on the type of system as well. Generally, I would say because LEED has been around the longest, it is one of the more general holistic systems or because folks tend to understand the best of LEED, Living Building Challenge and Well, I would say it's probably the least expensive and then it kind of goes upwards from there. Well, of course, is performance-based system. So that means that they do have someone coming on site, which does increase costs slightly. But on the flip side of things, I would say to your question on longer term payback, we definitely do see that, especially with respect to if you look at Living Building Challenge, where if you're looking at the energy pedal, for instance, where it requires you to have achieved net zero energy or net positive energy, you're going to see those operational cost benefits. You're going to see your energy bill reduce significantly. That's one of the great things about a system like Living Building Challenge, where they do ask that you kind of monitor and track your performance over 12 months, or at a minimum of 12 months, that you actually do see that energy savings come into play. How challenging is working towards multiple accreditations when they obviously require different standards and different monitoring? For example, your project, the Barclay School of Business, that has multiple accreditations. So where does the extra work for those come in? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say most of the systems have the same shared overall goal and purpose, and that's to improve either environmental, human health, well-being. So They have taken strides to try and align with each other. In the case of the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, that pursued LEED, WELL, and True Rating System, which was their kind of waste-focused rating system. And it can be a challenge if you've never worked with multiple systems before, but they do take steps to essentially accept each other's documentation in some cases. For instance, between LEED and WELL, where there's alignment with human health or occupant wellness, whether that's through material health or things like thermal and visual comfort through daylighting and glare, one system would accept the other. True was slightly different, and the administration of True was actually taken on by the school itself. And that's because it was more of a operation-based rating system. So this project was actually great because I think the rating systems covered not only design and construction, but it went through essentially the building operations as well through True to ensure that waste was being diverted during the operation of the project. What changes do you think the standards will need to make to cater for the environmental challenges that we're facing, such as flooding? Do the standards reflect the current level of concern that people have? And are they far-sighted enough? 
I would say that depending on the size of the system, oftentimes they are slightly playing a little bit of catch up or maybe they go off in one direction in materials when really addressing climate change. The overall system are all kind of addressing to the same needs of climate change, increases in greenhouse gas. But they are right now for lead anyways, specifically, I think it needs to do a little bit of a better job of addressing carbon. From my viewpoint, where we work a lot in embodied carbon, it's not maybe fully addressed or it's not accounted for properly with the amount of points that is given to. What we've seen in the industry is that embodied carbon can be a large contributor. So we're starting to reflect that in our designs, and it maybe has not caught up as much in some of these rating systems. Your case of flooding is a great example of resilience of buildings also not being totally captured. Now, there is a rating system specifically addressing resilience. It's called RELY. And while it had originally started off as a separate rating system, my understanding is that LEED is actually trying to integrate a lot of those resilience features and how we address resilience right into LEED system itself. So while it's recognized that these are issues, it does take a long time. With any system, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of critics. We want to make sure that they're getting it right. At the same time, they want to make sure that they're not releasing it slow enough, that it's not really making a difference. And how does working on an existing building rather than a new build affect the accreditation process? Is it more difficult because you're working within set parameters? You need to think about what you're working in the existing building with that's already upright and put in new technologies in a retrofit situation. Yeah, this is the age-old question, especially in the design and construction industry. I would say there are a lot of limitations working with an existing building, but in our line of work, we say the best building is the building that's already there, especially when thinking about it from a carbon perspective with all the energy that already went into making that building. We should do our best to kind of maintain that building and make sure it's up to date. So there are limitations specifically with historic buildings. Upgrading the envelope can be very challenging. A lot of times you're not allowed to really touch much of that. So you upgrade what you can, whether it's through the glazing, something as extreme as adding sort of a double skin facade, or it's just tacking on external shading. But with those limitations, you're often more focused on internal systems, such as improving the HVAC, the lighting systems, what can we do there? So yes, it is more challenging, but I think it is to everyone's benefit to really maintain these old buildings and retrofit them to the best extent possible. Is there concern within the industry because lead accreditations are not judged by an assessor on site? And how can the data be checked for accuracy? Yeah, that's a great question. We get that a lot, especially with folks that are new to working within the lead rating system. I would say there is some concern, but I mean, if we look at it from both sides, lead is seen as one of the more affordable systems. And I think that one of the ways they achieve that is just through relying on the professionalism of the lead administrator to ensure that whatever we say is going in site actually goes on site. Mm -hmm. The second part of the question was, how can data be checked for accuracy? I would say a lot of times they do audit. So when the reviewer gets documentation that they see 
maybe doesn't seem right, or they've made some mistakes. With mistakes, I'm thinking about things such as the energy model that most projects or all projects that go through lead have to put together if you're pursuing a performance kind of energy approach. So if they identify issues, oftentimes they're going back to the team, highlighting all the issues, asking them to correct them. And a lot of times that results in either a different result, different energy result, or maybe they put in something that wasn't actually there. So they do their best on the documentation side of things to make sure that that documentation is right. And I think you really rely on the team to be saying what's right, because the only person you're kind of pulling the wool over is either yourself or your client, and that shouldn't be the thing to do. And when does that audit take place? And is there a follow-up review afterwards? So with LEAD specifically, the auditing happens through the review process. So you can go for a combined design and construction review, or you can do one stage of review during design when the drawings are being put in, or after the drawings have been put in place, before the completion of construction. And then there's another submission at the end of construction to say, what were all the products that we used during the project? Make sure we capture all of that. There is no kind of post-occupancy review that happens. The greatest extent I would say to that is through commissioning, where commissioning asks for kind of a seasonal review. So they want to make sure that the building's operating as great during the summer as it is during the winter or the spring or the fall. So they ask for a generally 10-month review to make sure that the commissioning agent goes back to the building to make sure the systems are all working in place. Thank you. So the living building challenge is based on the building's actual performance rather than its hypothetical one. Do you think that that's the most accurate way to test the building's sustainability performance? And if so, why don't all the other accreditations measure in the same way? Yeah, I think if you equate sustainability performance to the measurable things such as energy and water and living building challenges place, I would say that's probably the best way of actually stating that your building is achieving net zero status or at what scale it is. So I would say yes to the first part. It is the most accurate way. I think the reason other systems don't do it is because you have to, under, I guess, understand the issues, especially for a new building that's coming online, to be able to finally achieve that net zero status. So if it's through energy, it's making sure all the systems are in place, making sure your renewable energy systems are running. And a lot of these, as you see, are kind of climate and environmental based. So depending on the weather that year or depending on how the systems were set up, it can take a while for that to set up. Not that that's an excuse. Of course, we do want to make sure if it's claiming that zero that it achieves it. But because of that, I think it can often drive up pricing, which is one of the things that we see rating systems as being uh, one of the knocks against it is it can be expensive. So it's often a very fine, delicate balance between the two of saying, how do we put in enough controls to make sure it's achieving it without making it kind of overburdened for the project team or too expensive for the client to pursue? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. So the well standard focuses on more than one type of sustainability. Why is it, in your opinion, important to explore the other types? So WELL focuses on occupant and human health mm-hmm. wellness, along with there are other systems such as FitWell as well. And I think it's hugely important. And the industries and the clients have really 
caught on to that and really understood that and want to pursue it. I think there's a statistic floating out there that salaries and wages of your staff make up, I think it's over 90% of a company's expense. Don't hold me to that, but I think it's somewhere in that range. It's a significant amount. So it makes sense for the building to be prioritizing occupant comfort, whether it's through daylight and views, or it's acoustics, or it's just getting up to to walk kind of active design principles of walking, using the stairs instead of the elevator, going outside, getting a nice open space. That's why Well and Fitwell have really focused on it. And I think has shown the real strong importance of, of looking at other areas. What do you think is the biggest challenge with these accreditations? Is there one thing that often proves, I don't like to say difficult, but you have to be aware that it's going to be an issue? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say, so with LEED, it's it's often documentation. I would say with Living Building Challenge, what Living Building Challenge is trying to do through the net zero of energy or water or, or things like this red list materials, that in itself is the huge challenge. So while it's a very rigorous system or it's extremely kind of out there, it makes achieving any of those pedals really the challenge. Of course, we know it's not super documentation heavy, but it is performance-based. And then with some of the health and wellness features, it's really just making sure that we do our best to, you know, it's, it's difficult to measure some of the benefits of these health and wellness. So really, when we say we're putting things in, doing it intentionally, making sure that what the kind of the intent and purpose of what they're asking for is really achieved in the project. And just lastly, do you think there are any other areas that should be covered by accreditations that aren't currently so? I would say the biggest missing piece right now for most of them, which I know they are trying to address, is the embodied carbon piece. Within the industry, we're really recognizing now, especially with you know seeing the effects of climate change, carbon is becoming, well, it's already been important, but Understanding the whole life impacts of carbon, as we like to say at Perkins Will, is extremely important. So that's, in addition to operational carbon, it's embodied carbon. And embodied carbon takes into effect not just the carbon used to build the project, but things such as the refrigerants used in your HVAC system or any type of refrigeration equipment that's looking at site work, site landscape, or even what's sequestered by landscape on your site. Thank you very much, Dalton. Really useful to know of your experience in this area and as it relates to projects that you've worked on. Thank you very much. That was great. We welcome your feedback on the podcast, so please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So follow, download and join us. Thank you.